16. G to be done is to get some way of splitting up a beam of light, so as to discover the components of which it is made. You might have a skein of silks of different hues tangled together, and this would be like the sunbeam as we receive it in its inserted condition. How shall we untangle the light from the sun or a star? I will show you by a simple experiment. Here is a beam from the electric light, beautifully white and bright. Is it not? It looks so pure and simple. But yet that beam is composed of all sorts of colors mingled together, in such proportions as to form white light. I take a wedge-shaped piece of glass called a prism, and when I introduce it into the course of the beam, you see the transformation that has taken place figure 4. Instead of the white light you have now all the colors of the rainbow red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, marked by their initial letters in the figure. These colors are very beautiful, but they are transient. For the moment we take away the prism they all unite again to form white light. You see what the prism has done, it has bent all the light in passing through it, but it is more effective in bending the blue than the red, and consequently the blue is carried away much further than the red. Such is the way in which we study the composition of a heavenly body. We take a beam of its light, we pass it through a prism, and immediately it is separated into its components, then we compare what we find with the lights given by the different elements and thus we are enabled to discover the substances which exist in the distant object whose light we have examined. I do not mean to say that the method is a simple one, all I am endeavoring to show is a general outline of the way in which we have discovered the materials present in the stars. The instrument that is employed for this purpose is called the spectroscope, and perhaps you may remember that name by these lines, which I have heard from an astronomical friend, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Now we find out what you are. When unto the midnight sky, we the spectroscope apply. I am sure it will interest everybody to know that the elements which the stars contain are not altogether different from those of which the earth is made. It is true there may be substances in the stars of which we know nothing here, but it is certain that many of the most common elements on the earth are present in the most distant bodies. I shall only mention one, the metal iron. That full substance has been found in some of the stars which lie at almost incalculable distances from the earth the nebulae. In drawing towards the close of these lectures I must say a few words about some dim and mysterious objects to which we have not yet alluded. They are what are called nebulae, or little clouds, and in one sense they are justly called little, for each of them occupies but a very small spot in the sky as compared with that which would be filled by an ordinary cloud in our air. The nebulae are, however, objects of the most stupendous proportions, were our earth and thousands of millions of bodies quite as big all put together they would not be nearly so great as one of these nebulae. Astronomers reckon up the various nebulae by thousands, but I must add that most of them are apparently faint and uninteresting. A nebula is sometimes liable to be mistaken for a comet. The comet island as I have already explained, that once distinguished by the fact that it is moving and changing its appearance from hour to hour, while scores of years elapse without changes in the aspect or position of a nebula. The most powerful telescopes are employed in observing these faint objects. I take this opportunity of showing a picture of an instrument suitable for such observations. It is the great reflector of the Paris Observatory figure 5. There are such multitudes of nebulae that I can only show a few of the more remarkable kinds. In figure 6 will be seen pictures of a curious object in the constellation of Lyra seen under different telescopic powers. This is a gigantic ring of luminous gas. To judge of the size of this ring let us suppose that a railway were laid across it, and the train you entered at one side was not to stop until it reached the other side. 
How long do you think this journey would require? I recollect some time ago a picture in Punch which showed a train about to start from London to Brighton, and the guard walking up and down announcing to the passengers the alarming fact that this train stops nowhere. An old gentleman was seen vainly gesticulating out of the window and imploring to be let out ere the frightful journey was commenced. In the Nebula Railway the passengers would almost require such a warning. Let the train start at a speed of a mile a minute. You would think, surely, that it must soon cross the ring. But the minutes pass. An hour has elapsed, so the distance must be sixty miles at all events. The hours creep on into days. The days advance into years. And still the train goes on. The years would lengthen out into centuries. And even when the train had been rushing on for a thousand years within an abated speed of a mile a minute, the journey would certainly not have been completed. Nor do I venture to say what ages must elapse ere the terminus at the other side of the ring nebula would be reached. A cluster of stars viewed in a small telescope will often seem like a nebula, for the rays of the stars become blended. A powerful telescope will, however, dispel the illusion and reveal the separate stars. It was, therefore, thought that all the nebulae might be merely clusters so exceedingly remote that our mightiest instruments failed to resolve them into stars. But this is now known not to be the case. Many of these objects are really masses of glowing gas, such are, for instance, the ring nebulae, of which I have just spoken, and the form of which I can simulate by a pretty experiment. We take a large box with a round hole cut in one face, and a canvas back at the opposite side. I first fill this box with smoke, and there are different ways of doing so. Burning brown paper does not answer well, because the supply of smoke is too irregular and the paper itself is apt to blaze. A little bit of phosphorus set on fire yields copious smoke, but it would be apt to make people cough. And, besides, phosphorus is a dangerous thing to handle incautiously, and I do not want to suggest anything which might be productive of disaster if the experiment was repeated at home. A little wisp of hay, slightly damped and lighted, will safely yield a sufficient supply, and you need not have an elaborate box like this, any kind of old packing case, or even a bandbox with a duster stretched across its open top and a round hole cut in the bottom, will answer capitally, while I have been speaking. My assistant has kindly filled this box with smoke, and in order to have a sufficient supply, and one which shall be as little disagreeable as possible, he has mixed together the fumes of hydrochloric acid and ammonia from two retorts shown in figure 7. A still simpler way of doing the same thing is to put a little common salt in a saucer and pour over it a little oil of vitriol, this is put into the box, and over the floor of the box common smelling salts is to be scattered. You see there are dense volumes of white smoke escaping from every corner of the box. I uncover the opening and give a push to the canvas. And you see a beautiful ring flying across the room, another ring and another follows. If you were near enough to feel the ring, you would experience a little puff of wind. I can show this by blowing out a candle which is at the other end of the table. These rings are made by the air which goes into a sort of eddy as it passes through the hole. All the smoke does is to render the air visible. The smoke ring is indeed quite elastic. If we send a second ring hurriedly after the first, we can produce a collision, and you see each of the two rings remains unbroken, though both are quivering from the effects of the blow. They are beautifully shown along the beam of the electric lamp, or, better still, along a sunbeam. We can make many experiments with smoke rings. Here, for instance, I take an empty box, so far as smoke is concerned, but air rings can be driven forth from it. Though you cannot see them, but you can feel them even at the other side of the room, 
and they will, as you see, blow out a candle. I can also shoot invisible air rings at a column of smoke, and when the missile strikes the smoke it produces a little commotion and emerges on the other side, carrying with it enough of the smoke to render itself visible, while the solid black-looking ring of air is seen in the interior. Still more striking is another way of producing these rings, for I charge this box with ammonia, and the rings from it you cannot see. There is a column of the vapor of hydrochloric acid, that also you cannot see, but when the visible ring enters the invisible column, then a sudden union takes place between the vapor of the ammonia and the vapor of the hydrochloric acid, the result is a solid white substance in extremely fine dust which renders the ring instantly visible. What the nebulae are made of, there is a fundamental difference between the illumination of these little rings that I have shown you and the great rings in the heavens. I had to illuminate our smoke with the help of the electric light. For, unless I had done so, you would not have been able to see them. This white substance formed by the union of ammonia and hydrochloric acid has, of course, no more light of its own than a piece of chalk. It requires other light falling upon it to make it visible. Were the ring nebula in Lyra composed of this material? We could not see it. The sunlight which illuminates the planets might, of course, light up such an object as the ring, if it were comparatively near us, but Lyra is at such a stupendous distance that any light which the sun could send out there would be just as feeble as the light we receive from a fixed star. Should we be able to show our smoke rings, for instance, if, instead of having the electric light, I merely cut a hole in the ceiling and allowed the feeble twinkle of a star in the great pair to shine through, in a similar way the sunbeams would be utterly powerless to effect any illumination of objects in these stellar distances. If the sun were to be extinguished altogether, the calamity would no doubt be a very dire one so far as we are concerned, but the effect on the other celestial bodies moon and planets accepted would be of the slightest possible description. All the stars of heaven would continue to shine as before. Not a point in one of the constellations would all be altered. Not a variation in the brightness. Not a change in the hue of any star could be noticed. The thousands of nebulae and clusters would be absolutely unaltered, in fact. The total extinction of the sun would be hardly remarked in the newspapers published in the Pleiades or in Orion. There might possibly be a little line somewhere in an odd corner to the effect, Mr. So-and-so, our well-known astronomer, has noticed that a tiny star, inconspicuous to the eye, and absolutely of no importance whatever, has now become invisible. If, therefore, it be not the sun which lights up this nebula, where else can be the source of its illumination? There can be no other star in the neighborhood adequate to the purpose, for, of course, such an object would be brilliant to us if it were large enough and bright enough to impart sufficient illumination to the nebula. It would be absurd to say that you could see a man's face by the light of a candle while the candle itself was too faint or too distant to be visible. The actual facts are, of course, the other way, the candle might be visible, when it was impossible to discern the face which it lighted. Hence we learn that the ring nebula must shine by some light of its own. And now we have to consider how it can be possible for such material to be self-luminous. The light of a nebula does not seem to be like flame. It can, perhaps, be better represented by the pretty electrical experiment with Geissler's tubes. These are glass vessels of various shapes. And they are all very nearly empty. As you will understand when I tell you the way in which they have been prepared. A little gas was allowed into each tube and then almost all the gas was taken out again, so that only a mere trace was left. I pass a current of electricity through these tubes, and now you see they are glowing with beautiful colors. The different gases give out lights of different hues, 
and the optician has exerted his skill so as to make the effect as beautiful as possible. The electricity, in passing through these tubes, heats the gas which they contain, and makes it glow, and just as this gas can, when heated sufficiently, give out light, so does the great nebula, which is a mass of gas poised in space, become visible in virtue of the heat which it contains. We are not left quite in doubt as to the constitution of these gaseous nebulae, for we can submit their light to the prism in the way I explained when we were speaking of the stars, distant though that ring in Lyra may be. It is interesting to learn that the ingredients from which it is made are not entirely different from substances we know on our earth. The water in this glass, and every drop of water, is formed by the union of two gases, of which one is hydrogen. This is an extremely light material, as you see by a little balloon which ascends so prettily when filled with it. Hydrogen also burns very readily, though the flame is almost invisible. When I blow a jet of oxygen through the hydrogen, I produce a little flame with a very intense heat. For instance, I hold a steel pen in the flame, and it glows and sputters, and falls down in white hot drops. It is needless to say that, as a constituent of water, hydrogen is one of the most important elements on the surf. It island therefore, of interest to learn that hydrogen in some form or other is a constituent of the most distant objects in space that the telescope has revealed, photographing the nebulae. Of late years we have learned a great deal about nebulae, by the help which photography has given to us. Look at this group of stars which constitutes that beautiful little configuration known as the Pleiades figure 8. It looks like a miniature representation of the great bear, in fact, it would be far more appropriate to call the Pleiades the little bear than to apply that title to another quite different constellation, as has unfortunately been done. The Pleiades form a group containing six or seven stars visible to the ordinary eye. Though persons endowed with exceptionally good vision can usually see a few more, in an opera glass the Pleiades becomes a beautiful spectacle, though in a large telescope the stars appear too far apart to make a really effective cluster. When Mr. Roberts took a photograph of the Pleiades he placed a highly sensitive plate in his telescope, and on that plate the Pleiades engraved their picture with their own light. He left the plate exposed for hours, and on developing it not only were the stars seen, but there were also patches of faint light due to the presence of nebulae. It could not be said that the objects on the plate were fallacious, for another photograph was taken, when the same appearances were reproduced. When we look at that pretty group of stars which has attracted admiration during all time, we are to think that some of those stars are merely the bright points in a vast nebula, invisible to our unaided eyes or even to our mighty telescopes, though capable of recording its trace on the photographic plate. Does not this give us a greatly increased notion of the extent of the universe, when we reflect that by photography we are enabled to see much which the mightiest of telescopes had previously failed to disclose, of all the nebulae, numbering some thousands, there is but a single one which can be seen without a telescope, it is in the constellation of Andromeda, and on a clear dark night can just be seen with the unaided eye as a faint stain of light on the sky. It has happened before now that persons noticing this nebula for the first time had thought they had discovered a comet. I would like you to try and find out this object for yourselves. If you look at it with an opera glass it appears to be distinctly elongated. You can see more of its structure when you view it in larger instruments. But its nature was never made clear until some beautiful photographs were taken by Mr. Roberts figure 9. Unfortunately. The nebula in Andromeda has not been placed in the best position for its portrait from our point of view. It seems as if it were a rather flat-shaped object, turned nearly edgewise towards us. To look at the pattern on a plate, 
you would naturally hold the plate so as to be able to look at it squarely. The pattern would not be seen well if the plate were so tilted that its edge was turned towards you. That seems to be nearly the way in which we are forced to view the nebula in Andromeda. We can trace in the photograph some divisions extending entirely round the nebula, showing that it seems to be formed of a series of rings, and there are some outlying portions which form part of the same system. Truly this is a marvelous object. It is impossible for us to form any conception of the true dimensions of this gigantic nebula, it is so far off that we have never yet been able to determine its distance. Indeed, I may take this opportunity of remarking that no astronomer has yet succeeded in ascertaining the distance of any nebula. Everything, however, points to the conclusion that they are at least as far as the stars. It is almost impossible to apply the methods which we use in finding the distance of a star to the discovery of the distance of the nebulae. These flimsy bodies are usually too ill-defined to admit of being measured with the precision and delicacy required for the determination of distance. The measurements necessary for this purpose can only be made from one star-like point to another similar point. If we could choose a star in the nebula and determine its distance, then of course, we have the distance of the nebula itself, but the difficulty is that we have, in general, no means of knowing whether the star does actually lie in the object. It may, for anything we can tell, lie billions of miles nearer to us, or billions of miles further off, and by merely happening to lie in the line of sight, appear to glimmer in the nebula itself. If we have any assurance that the star is surrounded by a mass of this glowing vapor, then it may be possible to measure that nebula's distance. It will occasionally happen that grounds can be found for believing that a star which appears to be in the glowing gas does veritably lie therein, and is not merely seen in the same direction. There are hundreds of stars visible in a good drawing or a good photograph of the famous object in Andromeda, and doubtless large numbers of these are merely stars which happen to lie in the same line of sight. The peculiar circumstances attending the history of one star seem, however, to warrant us in making the assumption that it was certainly in the nebula. The history of this star is a remarkable one. It suddenly kindled from invisibility into brilliancy. How is a change so rapid in the luster of a star to be accounted for? In a few days its brightness had undergone an extraordinary increase. Of course, this does not tell us for certain that the star lay in the glowing gas, but the most rational explanation that I had heard offered of this occurrence is that due, I believe, to my friend Mr. Monk. He has suggested that the sudden outbreak in brilliancy might be accounted for on the same principles as those by which we explain the ignition of meteors in our atmosphere. If a dark star, moving along with terrific speed through space, were suddenly to plunge into a dense region of the nebula, heat and light must be evolved in sufficient abundance to transform the star into a brilliant object. If, therefore, we knew the distance of the star at the time it was in Andromeda, we should, of course, learn the distance of that interesting object. This has been attempted, and it has thus been proved that the great nebula must be very much further from us than is that star of whose distance I attempted some time ago to give you a notion. We thus realize the enormous size of the great nebula. It appears that if, on a map of this object, we were to lay down, accurately to scale, a map of the solar system, putting the sun in the center and all the planets around their true proportions out to the boundary traced by Neptune, this area, vast though an island would be a mere speck on the drawing of the object, our system would have to be enormously bigger before it sufficed to cover anything like the area of the sky included in one of these great objects. Here is a sketch of a nebula, figure 10, and near I had marked a dot, which is to indicate our solar system. 
we may feel confident that the great nebula is at the very least as mighty as this proportion would indicate. Rain and snow from the forms of water, by John D. Y. and D. A. L. Oceanic distillation, at the equator, and within certain limits north and south of it, the sun at certain periods of the year is directly overhead at noon. These limits are called the tropics of Cancer and of Capricorn. Upon the belt comprised between these two circles the sun's rays fall with their mightiest power, for here they shoot directly downwards, and heat both earth and sea more than when they strike slantingly. When the vertical sunbeams strike the land they heat it, and the air in contact with the hot soil becomes heated in turn, but when heated the air expands, and when it expands it becomes lighter, this lighter air rises, like wood plunged into a water, through the heavier air overhead, when the sunbeams fall upon the sea the water is warmed, though not so much as the land, the warmed water expands, becomes thereby lighter, and therefore continues to float upon the top. This upper layer of water warms to some extent the air in contact with it, but it also sends up a quantity of aqueous vapor, which being far lighter than air, helps the latter to arise. Thus both from the land and from the sea we have ascending currents established by the action of the sun. When they reach a certain elevation in the atmosphere, these currents divide and flow, part towards the north and part towards the south, while from the north and the south a flow of heavier and colder air sets in to supply the place of the ascending warm air. Incessant circulation is thus established in the atmosphere. The equatorial air and vapor flow above towards the north and south poles, while the polar air flows below towards the equator. The two currents of air thus established are called the upper and the lower trade winds, but before the air returns from the poles great changes had occurred, for the air as it quitted the equatorial regions was laden with aqueous vapor, which could not subsist in the cold polar regions. It is there precipitated, falling sometimes as rain or more commonly as snow. The land near the pole is covered with the snow, which gives birth to vast glaciers. It is necessary that you should have a perfectly clear view of this process, for great mistakes have been made regarding the manner in which glaciers are related to the heat of the sun. It was supposed that if the sun's heat were diminished, greater glaciers than those now existing would be produced, but the lessening of the sun's heat would infallibly diminish the quantity of aqueous vapor, and thus cut off the glaciers at their source. A brief illustration will complete your knowledge here. In the process of ordinary distillation, the liquid to be distilled is heated and converted into vapor in one vessel, and chilled and reconverted into a liquid in another. What has just been stated renders it plain that the earth and its atmosphere constitute a vast distilling apparatus in which the equatorial ocean plays the part of the boiler, and the chill regions of the poles the part of the condenser. In this process of distillation heat plays quite as necessary a part as cold and before Bishop Heber could speak of Greenland's icy mountains, the equatorial ocean had to be warmed by the sun. We shall have more to say upon this question afterwards. The heating of the tropical air by the sun is indirect. The solar beams have scarcely any power to heat the air through which they pass, but they heat the land and ocean, and these communicate their heat to the air in contact with them. The air and vapor start upwards charged with the heat thus communicated. Tropical rains but long before the air and vapor from the equator reach the poles, precipitation occurs. Wherever a humid warm wind mixes with a cold dry one, rain falls. Indeed the heaviest rains occur at those places where the sun is vertically overhead. We must inquire a little more closely into their origin. Fill a bladder about two-thirds full of air at the sea level, and take it to the summit of Mount Blanc. As you ascend, the bladder becomes more and more distended, at the top of the mountain it is fully distended and has evidently to bear a pressure from within, 
Returning to the sea level you find that the tightness disappears, the bladder finally appearing as flaccid as at first. The reason is plain, at the sea level the air within the bladder has to bear the pressure of the whole atmosphere, being thereby squeezed into a comparatively small volume. In ascending the mountain, you leave more and more of the atmosphere behind, the pressure becomes less and less, and by its expansive force the air within the bladder swells as the outside pressure is diminished. At the top of the mountain the expansion is quite sufficient to render the bladder tight, the pressure within being then actually greater than the pressure without. By means of an air pump we can show the expansion of a balloon partly filled with air, when the external pressure has been in part removed. But why do I dwell upon this? Simply to make plain to you that the unconfined air, heated at the earth's surface, and ascending by its lightness, must expand more and more the higher it rises in the atmosphere. And now I have to introduce to you a new fact, towards the statement of which I have been working for some time. It is this, the ascending air is chilled by its expansion. Indeed this chilling is one source of the coldness of the higher atmospheric regions. And now fix your eye upon those mixed currents of air and aqueous vapor which rise from the warm tropical ocean. They start with plenty of heat to preserve the vapor as vapor, but as they rise they come into regions already chilled, and they are still further chilled by their own expansion. The consequence might be foreseen. The load of vapor is in great part precipitated. Dense clouds are formed. Their particles coalesce to raindrops, which descend daily in gushes so profuse that the word torrential is used to express the copiousness of the rainfall. I could show you this chilling by expansion, and also the consequent precipitation of clouds. Thus long before the air from the equator reaches the poles its vapor is in great part removed from it, having redescended to the earth as rain. Still a good quantity of the vapor is carried forward, which yields hail, rain, and snow in northern and southern lands, mountain condensers. To complete our view of the process of atmospheric precipitation we must take into account the action of mountains. Imagine a southwest wind blowing across the Atlantic towards Ireland. In its passage it charges itself with aqueous vapor. In the south of Ireland it encounters the mountains of Kerry, the highest of these is Magilliacuddy's Reeks, near Killarney. Now the lowest stratum of this Atlantic wind is that which is most fully charged with vapor. When it encounters the base of the Kerry Mountains it is tilted up and flows bodily over them. Its load of vapor is therefore carried to a height. It expands on reaching the height. It is chilled in consequence of the expansion, and comes down in copious showers of rain. From this, in fact, arises the luxuriant vegetation of Killarney, to this, indeed, the lakes owe their water supply. The cold crests of the mountains also aid in the work of condensation. Note the consequence. There is a town called Cahersavane to the southwest of Magilliacuddy's Reeks, at which observations of the rainfall have been made, and a good distance farther to the northeast. Right in the course of the southwest wind there is another town, called Porterling, at which observations of rainfall have also been made, but before the wind reaches the latter station it has passed over the mountains of Kerry and left a great portion of its moisture behind it. What is the result? At Cahersavane, as shown by Dr. Lloyd, the rainfall amounts to 59 inches in a year, while at Porterling it is only 21 inches. Again, you may sometimes descend from the Alps when the fall of rain and snow is heavy and incessant, into Italy, and find the sky over the plains of Lombardy blue and cloudless the wind at the same time blowing over the plain towards the Alps. Below the wind is hot enough to keep its vapor in a perfectly transparent state, but it meets the mountains, is tilted up, expanded, and chilled. The cold of the higher summits also helps the chill. 
the consequence is that the vapor is precipitated as rain or snow, thus producing bad weather upon the heights, while the plains below, flooded with the same air, enjoy the aspect of the unclouded summer Sunday clouds blowing from the Alps are also sometimes dissolved over the plains of Lombardy, in connection with the formation of clouds by mountains, one particularly instructive effect may be here noticed, you frequently see a streamer of cloud many hundred yards in length drawn out from an alpine peak, its steadiness appears perfect, though a strong wind may be blowing at the same time over the mountain head, why is the cloud not blown away, it is blown away, its permanence is only apparent, at one end it is incessantly dissolved, at the other end it is incessantly renewed, supply and consumption being thus equalized, the cloud appears as changeless as the mountain to which it seems to cling, when the red sun of the evening shines upon these cloud streamers they resemble vast torches with their flames blown through the air, architecture of snow, we now resemble persons who have climbed a difficult peak, and thereby earned the enjoyment of a wide prospect, having made ourselves masters of the conditions necessary to the production of mountain snow, we are able to take a comprehensive and intelligent view of the phenomena of glaciers, a few words are still necessary as to the formation of snow, the molecules and atoms of all substances, 